welcome to another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, The Cortical Evoked Potential Corresponds with Deep Brain Stimulation, Efficacy in Rats. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief, Professor Nino Ramirez, and author, Professor Warren Grill. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie, and hi, Warren. Many thanks for participating in our podcast series today where we will discuss the mechanisms of deep brain stimulation. But before we begin, please let me introduce you to our listeners. So Professor Warren Grill is Distinguished Professor of Biomedical Engineering, Neurobiology and Neurosurgery at Duke University. He obtained his Bachelor in Biomedical Engineering from Boston University, received his PhD from Case Western Reserve University, and he's the co-founder, director, and chief scientific officer of NDI Medical, uh, medical device incubator, and he's also the co-founder, director, and chief scientific officer of DBI, which is a commercially available novel approach to brain stimulation for neurological disorders. He's also the chief scientific advisor of SPR Therapeutics, which has developed novel therapies for treating pain. So Dr. Grill serves also as a consultant to the neurological uh, device uh, panel of the FDA Medical Device Advisory Committee, and he's on the editorial boards of Brain Stimulation, Current Opinion in Biomedical Engineering, and he's also the deputy editor of the Journal of Neural Engineering. Now, Professor Grill has authored over 235 peer-reviewed publications and is an inventor of more than 60 patents. And in 2007, he was elected as a fellow of the American Institute of Medical and Biological Engineering, and in 2008, Professor Grill received the Capers Marion uh, McDonald Award for Excellence in Teaching and Research at Duke University. And uh, in 2009, Dr. Grill was inducted into the Bass uh, Society of Fellows at Duke for Excellence in Teaching and Research. Now, Professor Grill research employs engineering approaches to understand and control neural functions, and he studies address fundamental questions related to electrical brain stimulation and he's a leader in the development of electrical stimulation to restore function to individuals with neurological impairment or injury. Now, as I said, we will discuss deep brain stimulation with Dr. Grill and we'll focus in particular on his recently published paper in the Journal of Neurophysiology. And as most of the listeners know, all our thoughts, actions, and emotions are generated and mediated by electrical activity and electrical communication between neurons. So consequently, most neurological and psychiatric disorders are reflected in disturbances in electrical activity and the electrophysiological communication between neurons. Thus, in theory, it should be possible to treat most neurological or psychiatric disorders by targeting disturbed electrophysiological communication with electrical stimulation of specific brain regions. Of course, as you can imagine, the situation is way more complex because a disease is never static and often progressing, which makes treating a, a neurological disorder somewhat of a moving target. Moreover, all behaviors and actions depend on numerous interactions and feedback loops and feedforward loops of activity between many different regions and a given disturbance, like, for example, the loss of specific neurons in one particular region will affect many interactions in other regions and will have numerous consequences. Now, while this is complicating the task to specifically target the activity of specific neurons, 
it also offers opportunities to indirectly affect a given task or behavior in different regions. And as we'll discuss today, in case of Parkinson's disease, movement disturbances caused by the loss of neurons in the substantia nigra can be controlled, for example, by stimulating the subthalamic nucleus, the globus pallidus internus, or probably also other stimulating brain areas like thalamus. So deep brain stimulation, or also called DBS as a clinical treatment, has been introduced in the late 1990s and is frequently applied for the treatment of movement disorders, including Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, dystonia, but also in the context of psychiatric conditions such as OCD, depression, Tourette syndrome, anxiety, as well as in the context of epilepsy and pain management. So you can see there's many areas that we uh, touch today. However, and that's the problem, the mechanism why and how DBS works is poorly understood. But there's much hope that a better mechanistic understanding and the introduction of novel stimulation techniques may make this approach much more specific and more effective and ultimately more frequently used. Now, in case of Parkinson's disease, the electrodes are typically placed in the subthalamic nucleus, which leads to the antidromic simulation of the primary motor cortex, M1, which then can treat hypokinetic behaviors. However, a problem is that we don't know what type of stimulation-induced changes in cortical activity reflect the changes in the hypokinetic behavior. And this is a problem because if we don't understand which changes reflect the therapeutically desired behavioral changes, it is difficult to optimize the DBS. And the paper uh, published by Professor Grill addresses specifically this fundamental issue. So Professor Grill, uh, Warren, Thank you so much again. And uh, could you begin maybe by describing the pathways that are disturbed in Parkinson's disease and how subthalamic nucleus stimulation reduces the known clinical symptoms? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ramirez. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here to have the opportunity to discuss our work. As the listeners probably know, uh, Parkinson's disease is caused by the degeneration of a group of neurons in the substantia nigra those neurons make dopamine, and when they die or degenerate, uh, there's a loss of dopamine in the brain. And this leads uh, through mechanisms that are not completely understood to the motor and non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, including tremor, slowness of movement, disruptions of gait. You referred earlier to disturbances in electrical activity in the brain, and I think that this is really a, a, a beneficial way to think about Parkinson's disease. Following the loss of those dopamine neurons, there are changes in both the rate, how often neurons fire, and the pattern with which they fire throughout the basal ganglia, as well as the thalamus and the cortex. And it, it, it's those changes in the rate and pattern of neural activity that appear to be to beget the motor symptoms. What still remains unclear is why the loss of dopamine leads to those changes in rate and pattern and the exact link between those patterns of activity and particular symptoms. Yeah, and I think we'll discuss later on also, you know, like about these patterns uh, in more detail. And uh, perhaps uh, maybe also, since you're like really involved in the development of this technique, could you give us a little bit of an overview of the current approaches, such as uh, closed loop stimulation 
or what other ways have been used to optimize stimulation parameters. And as you discuss these issues, you could also explain the need to find reliable biomarkers or cortical signatures that can be used to assess the effectiveness of DBS. Yeah, so deep brain stimulation or DBS uh, has been shown great effectiveness for a range of neurological disorders, in particular Parkinson's disease and essential tremor. And like any other medication, dose is a very important consideration. In this case, we think about dose in terms of stimulation parameters. And those parameters include the amplitude of the stimulation pulse, the duration of the stimulation pulse, the pulse repetition frequency, and as well, the electrodes that are placed either in subthalamic nucleus or in the internal segment of globus pallidus to treat Parkinson's disease have multiple contacts on them. So in addition to amplitude, duration, and frequency, you also have to select a montage of electrodes that are active in order to treat symptoms and avoid side effects. This is typically done by a, a healthcare professional uh, in the clinic. So they'll, they'll tune these parameters to try to provide the greatest symptom relief for a particular individual. However, those parameters don't vary. Once they're set, unless the patient comes back in for a tune-up, so to speak, th those parameters are fixed. But it's pretty likely that the needs of the patient for stimulation vary with their activities during the course of the day, whether they're sitting at their desk or walking across campus to get lunch and they likely vary with the state of medication. So most individuals who receive deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease also are still taking their dopamine replacement medication, typically at only about 50% of the dose they were taking prior to DBS, but that medication has a time course associated with it. And so as the amount of dopamine varies, the amount of deep brain stimulation that an individual needs over time also varies. So this really uh, leads us to the idea of closed loop deep brain stimulation. That is rather than those parameters that are referred to earlier, the amplitude, the duration, and the pulse repetition frequency being fixed, those parameters can actually be adapted in real time in response to the needs of the patient, whether as a result of change in medication status or as a result of, of change in uh, their physical activity. I think a good analogy here uh, is, is cruise control for an automobile. So you, you, you push this little button on your car and it maintains your speed at 65 miles per hour. And in order for the cruise control to do that, uh, it employs a closed loop controller. It senses your speed using a speedometer and then it adjusts the throttle uh, either up or down to maintain your speed. And similarly, in the case of deep brain stimulation, we need some kind of biomarker or feedback signal analogous to the speedometer, something that we can measure that tells us how much stimulation should we be applying with what parameters at a given point in time, depending on the physical activity or medication status of that patient. Wonderful. Warren, I can tell why you got the teaching awards. You know, it's, you explain very well, and it's very interesting. Now, when you stimulate the subthalamic nucleus, you evoke short latency cortical potentials that are very sensitive to the stimulation condition and the evoked mode of behavior. So perhaps could you explain the relationships between the magnitude and latency 
the stimulation frequency and the motor behavior itself, and perhaps also what this tells us about how DBS controls motor behavior. Yeah, thanks, Nino. So this this really gets to the essence uh, of this paper, uh, which was a component of the doctoral work of Isaac Kasser, who did his uh, PhD here in biomedical engineering at Duke. And in, in a way, you can think of this as we were looking for the speedometer for closed loop deep brain stimulation. That is, could we identify a biomarker that was related to the effects of deep brain stimulation on symptom? And as you indicated, when you stimulate in the subthalamic nucleus, you activate electrically the axons that are projecting from the motor cortex into the subthalamic nucleus along what's called the hyperdirect pathway. And when you excite those axons, the action potentials go retrogradely back up to the motor cortex, and you can record an evoked potential over the motor cortex. And in this work, we demonstrated that that signal evoked in the cortex, the cortical evoked potential, can be used to infer the effects of deep brain stimulation on motor function or on symptoms. This signal turned out to be more strongly correlated with symptoms than other feedback signals that we examined. So for example, there's been a lot of work recording ongoing oscillatory activity in local field potentials. You could think about this as listening to the, to the activity of populations of neurons, as if you're listening to the whole orchestra simultaneously. And the tune that that orchestra is playing is indicative of symptom. So therefore, could be used as a feedback signal or as a speedometer to adjust your closed loop controller. So these signals were the kind of state of the art before we did this study. So we compared how well did the changes in the cortical evoke potential correlate with changes in symptoms during DBS? And how does that uh, relationship, the tightness of it, compare to these other oscillatory recording signals? And what we found is that the cortical evoke potential was more strongly correlated with symptom than other potential feedback signals. And therefore, this may be suitable as a, as a speedometer, if you will, for closed loop uh, deep brain stimulation. Yeah, Warren. In, in fact, I wanted to follow up on this because when stimulating the subthalamic nucleus, as I said, you use specific stimulus frequencies, which then affect intrinsic frequencies of rhythmic activities that are generated in the brain. And I think for, for the listeners, important to know that really most of our brain activity is rhythmic, you know, like you have all these different frequencies like the beta, alpha, delta, gamma, et cetera. And they relate to brain states. And, and so yet you find that measuring the power spectrum is not so reliable and not as good of a marker when compared to evoke potential. And uh, you found specifically that these power spectra and their responses show an increased individual variability, which is also the case in humans. And since the power spectrum or the intrinsically generated frequency relate to the state of the animal or the human, so why is it so unreliable? I think in some cases you find that the beta rhythm cannot be affected. In others, it can be affected. Could you elaborate a little bit on this very interesting phenomenon? Yeah, so what we found is that the, the features of the cortical evoke potential were more strongly correlated with motor behaviors and were more consistent across animals in contrast to these 
spectral biomarkers, which were more weakly correlated with motor behaviors and were much more variable across animals. And that variability of these spectral biomarkers is are also that variability is also seen in humans with Parkinson's disease. And the link between those spectral biomarkers, the, the most popular of which is the power in the beta band, it's highly correlated with uh, bradykinesia or slowness of movement. But the exact frequencies within that beta band that are accentuated or reduced in a given participant or a given human vary quite a bit across that population. And what gives rise to that variability is still unclear. So there have been efforts to look whether there are changes in the beta oscillatory frequency that are related to disease progression. Doesn't seem to be anything there related to the particular profile of symptoms that an individual presents with doesn't seem to be anything there. So the source of that variability, which we also observed in a very homogeneous population of experimental animals, somewhat surprising to us, the source of that variability is, is elusive. Very fascinating. So, so you think like in the future with uh, increased uh, the use of AI, there could be algorithms or, or you think it's, it's just like because of the individual variability, it's very difficult to track going forward. Yeah, I think what we're going to move toward is closed loop deep brain stimulation that makes use not of one biomarker, whether it's beta oscillatory activity or the cortical evoke potential, but rather a constellation of signals that are being recorded simultaneously. And what that constellation affords us is the ability to titrate parameters to address specific dysfunctions or specific symptoms. That is, maybe if someone has disruption of gait and that gives rise to change in a particular uh, biomarker and we can respond to that. Or someone has profound slowness of movement in another situation and that gives rise to change in another specific biomarker and we can respond to that. So I think that this constellation approach will allow us to really tune the therapy to the needs of a particular individual, independent of whether their, their beta oscillatory signal is at 19 hertz or 24 hertz. So interesting. Do you think also that vice versa, it's not only therapeutically important, but also for understanding what causes the hypokinesia? Basically, if you, if you basically understand which frequency is the one that can affect it, can you use this to better understand what is the disease uh, actually, uh, what, what is causing actually the disease? Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting question, you know, whether the increased or accentuated beta oscillatory signal is causative of bradykinesia or is an epiphenomenon that's somehow linked to this symptom. And in, in another study, we tried to address this by, in healthy rats, delivering electrical stimulation in the basal ganglia that generated accentuated levels of beta oscillatory activity. That is, make, make the brain oscillatory activity look as if the animal had Parkinson's disease, even though it didn't. And the question was, does that result in symptom? Is there causality? 
And surprisingly, we did not see the generation of symptom, even though electrical recordings from the brain clearly showed that we had generated this beta oscillatory activity. Now, when we started to present this work, our colleagues, and it shows the, the importance of peer review, our colleagues raised an important caveat, which is perhaps the substrate of the brain has changed in Parkinson's disease such that the beta oscillatory activity, that accentuated activity in the Parkinsonian brain, does something different than it does in the healthy brain. I thought this is a really fascinating point. So we went back and did a, a, a follow-on experiment where in animals that were rendered Parkinsonian, they exhibited clear symptom, we then gave them dopamine medication. So now they had no symptoms, but they still had a brain substrate that looked like Parkinson's disease. We then played in the electrical pattern of stimulation that produced beta oscillatory activity to again ask this question, does it then make it look like the animal again has Parkinson's disease? And surprising to us, the answer was again, no. Even though we could produce beta oscillatory activity in a brain that had the Parkinsonian substrate, this did not result in symptom. And the, the student who worked on this, uh, Christina Behrend, she did this across a whole spectrum of different behavioral outcome measures because our concern was that we weren't sensitive, that there was a subtle change in behavior that we weren't able to detect. Across this whole suite of outcome measures, we could not detect a behavioral consequence of accentuated beta oscillatory activity. So, to, so our current thinking is that there's some other disruption of rate and pattern of activity that causes symptom and at the same time causes this beta increase in beta oscillatory activity, but there's not a direct link between that beta oscillatory activity and the symptom. Wow, that is fascinating. Absolutely. And, and do you think other frequencies like high gamma could play a role or... Yeah. yeah, so there are some data to suggest that when you move from a hypokinetic or antikinetic state, that is a, the inability to move, to a state where you can move, whether as a result of taking dopamine medicine or as a result of turning on high frequency deep brain stimulation, that you see a suppression of this accentuated beta oscillatory activity and an accentuation of activity in the gamma band as if that gamma band activity is, is permissive of movement, whereas the beta oscillatory activity is, is, the, is the break, if you will, stopping movement. Wow. My God, you know, finally, I think it, it gets us to the question of what, what is the role of rhythms in the brain, you know, and, and, and probably it's not a simple answer. And I, I find it very fascinating that deep brain stimulation can give us really answers to this very fundamental question about how the brain works. So, you, you talk about also phase amplitude coupling as a potential marker in DBS. Maybe for completion, could you also come, uh, explain phase, uh, the PAC, phase amplitude coupling? Yeah, that's, that's a challenging thing to explain, uh, you know, on the, on the radio, so to speak. It, it's, it's challenging even to uh, you know, explain when you have the slides or a, or a blackboard. <laughs> even a blackboard challenging to, the, to, to our teacher of work. Already. <laughs> yeah, so phase amplitude coupling <laughs> refers to the coupling between two signals where the amplitude of one signal, 
varies according to the phase of the other signal. And accentuated phase amplitude coupling has been identified both in animal models of Parkinson's disease and in humans with Parkinson's disease, both in the subthalamic nucleus and also in the motor cortex as being uh, highly correlated with symptom. And it's almost as if that accentuated phase amplitude coupling locks the system in a state where communication, that is the transmission of movement-related information, is being precluded by that robust phase amplitude coupling. That is, the neurons can't get out of this imposed rhythm. Either administration of dopamine medicine or the delivery of high-frequency deep brain stimulation both have been shown to reduce this phase amplitude coupling. That is, now breaking this link of the oscillatory activity, these two components of oscillatory activity, presumably now allowing that motor-related information to come through the, the circuit. Hey, you explained it fantastically. So, so really, uh, again, so this basically, this approach can teach us also a lot about the, the underlying mechanism of the disorder, correct? And, and uh, so it's, it's fascinating to think about DBS as a research tool also, not as, only as a therapeutic tool to, to really understand disease progression and disease causality. Now, yeah, I think uh, if I could if I could comment on that, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, you know, I think you know, in addition to the what I would characterize as miraculous effects of deep brain stimulation on the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, there's another gold mine, which is the direct access to human brain that is created by this therapeutic uh, treatment. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. So, for example, we routinely go into the operating room during the implantation of deep brain stimulation leads and make temporary connection to those leads so that we can either stimulate and or record directly from the human brain while the uh, patient is awake, because these, these implantation surgeries are done with the patient awake. And then also in another context, the most of the implanted pulse generators that are used to deliver deep brain stimulation are powered by primary cell batteries. And those batteries last four to five years, depending on the parameters of stimulation. And then the patient comes in and the, the, the battery is typically placed in the chest up near the clavicle, and they undergo a relatively minor surgical procedure to replace the battery. And at that time, we also can make temporary direct connection to the brain lead and do stimulation recording directly from the human brain in an, in an awake uh, behaving person. And so this is one of the few opportunities where we can not only deliver a tremendous therapeutic advantage to a patient, but also use that as an opportunity to understand better the function of the human brain. Oh, Warren, you speak from my heart, really. I think that's why when neurosurgery is really the, the, the frontier for neuroscience going forward. And it is a huge opportunity to, to unravel things that we cannot do in, in animal models. So fascinating, very fascinating. Now, we know that it's very critical to record from a very specific target region within the motor cortex, in your case for the evoked potential, or also in the placement of the electrode. So in general, imaging electrode placement is pretty difficult because of the interference with the virus 
and the magnetic field of the MRI. So how relevant is this now for your study to, to translate into from the rat to the human patient, you know, where, where you now are, have different conditions for, for electrode placement than in a rat? Yeah, so when we recorded these cortical evoked potentials in the rat, uh, we used a, a metallic screw that's placed through the bone of the skull and abuts the dura over the motor cortex. So this is a relatively, you know, let's call it a minimally invasive way to record from the cortex and has a relatively broad sensitivity, meaning it's not a particularly specific recording. Similarly, in the human, uh, there are data to suggest that even using EEG, that is recordings from the surface of the scalp, you can detect these cortical evoked potentials that result from subthalamic nucleus DBS. So uh, Harrison Walker, who is a neurologist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, has shown the feasibility of recording these even very short latency evoked potentials over the human motor cortex using an EEG style recording. I think from a clinical perspective, if we want to make use of these recordings for closed loop DBS, people are not going to be, they're not going to want to walk around with it with an EEG cap, uh, right? In, in fact, when, when you talk to recipients of deep brain stimulation, one of the things they find most appealing about this therapy is once it's implanted and programmed, they forget that they even have it. They don't need to interact with it in any way. You know, they come in periodically to, to, to have a checkup, of course, like we all do, but they don't need to think about it. They don't need to turn it on. They don't need to turn it off. They don't need to tune it up. So I think as, as, as we contemplate closed loop DBS, we wanna think about doing this in a way where everything is implanted inside the body and the patients don't need to think about it. So for the cortical evoke potential, the vision would be an electrode placed over the surface of the motor cortex, either subdurally or epidurally, recording the population activity from the motor cortex, as we did in the rat and as, and as Harrison Walker has done in the human. We're now starting these experiments in human. So during the implantation of the deep brain stimulation electrodes, there's about a dime-sized hole drilled through the skull to put the electrode down into the brain. And you can slide a lead, an, an additional recording electrode array through that burr hole, that dime-sized hole, so that it's positioned over the motor cortex, stimulating the subthalamic nucleus while recording over the motor cortex in human. We'll get maybe 20 minutes in the operating room to do that experiment and then remove that recording electrode and then the surgery proceeds as it, as it would uh, in, in any uh, patient. And so we're at the early phases of now doing these cortical evoked potential recordings in humans with Parkinson's disease during the implantation of DBS. Wonderful. And I think uh, you're addressing actually a, a very interesting finding that it's also relevant for brain computer interfaces where, you know, like initially the thought was, oh, you have to record from very, very specific neurons, you know, invasively, but it seems like ECOGS and, and other methods can provide pretty good insights into coding of the brain activity and, and, and can be used in this context. So very, very fascinating. 
and and it's great also that the mouse model or the rat model can replicate this so perfect now uh in in some cases people use anesthesia you know and and uh so what is the role or the effect of anesthesia on the evoke potential and more generally what is the role of anesthesia in electrode placing different anesthesia have different effects on the state of the brain and uh, like ketamine versus uh, isoflurane maybe since you're so experienced about all these uh, practical issues could you talk about this yeah so so one of the important considerations for the using the cortical evoke potential is that it also might have utility to help with electrode placement so the subthalamic nucleus in human is about the size of an almond and it's roughly in the geometric center of your head so this is a non-trivial target for the neurosurgeon to hit so in the operating room it would be very helpful to have a feedback signal told the surgeon yep she or he is in the they've got the electrode into the almond they've they've hit the target correctly and the cortical evoke potential is one possible signal that uh, they may be able to use in our preclinical experiments in the rat we showed very clearly that if the electro the stimulating electrodes were not in the subthalamic nucleus in the rat you didn't get a robust cortical evoke potential because you couldn't activate those axons from the hyperdirect pathway that you spoke about earlier suggesting that maybe this would have utility in the human but if you want to do this in a human some dbs uh, procedures and it's desirable to do these under anesthesia some patients are not going to be tolerant of, of doing it awake and one of the reasons it's done awake is to confirm electrode placement. So if you have this other way to confirm electrode placement, then you could do these implants under anesthesia. So we wanted to understand what's the effect of uh, anesthesia on the cortical evoke potential. And in this case, we used isoflurane, a volatile gas anesthetic, because it's typical of what might be used for short duration anesthesia in the operating room as well. And we, we observed that Importantly, the cortical evoke potential is still there under anesthesia, which again reinforces this idea that it resulted from antidromic activation of axons and didn't need a lot of synaptic transmission, which we would anticipate being disrupted by a volatile anesthetic. And as important, the frequency tuning, that is the effect of stimulation frequency on the cortical evoke potential was preserved under anesthesia. We didn't talk about this earlier when we were talking about stimulation parameters, but changing the, the, the selection of stimulation frequency has a profound effect on whether or not deep brain stimulation reduces symptoms. At low frequencies, you may actually accentuate symptoms, typically see no suppression of symptoms, and only when the pulse repetition frequency exceeds about 100 pulses per second you begin to see a reduction of symptom. The cortical evoke potential also showed a similar frequency tuning. That is, the characteristics of that evoke potential depended on the stimulation frequency in a way that paralleled the effect of stimulation frequency on symptom. That frequency tuning was preserved even in the presence of volatile anesthesia. Again, emphasizing the robustness of this cortical evoke potential and that it may have utility to help us identify whether or not an electrode is positioned correctly, 
even in a patient who's having their implantation done under anesthesia. Fascinating. Now you talk about symptoms and uh, Parkinson patients have, of course, not only motor symptoms, the loss of dopamine cells in, in the substantia nigra has also psychological consequences. So, so how are non-motor symptoms affected by DBS and can DBS be selectively used to target, for example, psychological versus non-psychological you know, uh, psychological, uh, issues? Yeah, so right now, the, you know, the, the, the vast majority of emphasis has been on the use of deep brain stimulation to treat the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And the measurements of effects of DBS on non-motor have largely been focused on, does it make things worse? You know, are there, si are there psychiatric side effects of deep brain stimulation or adverse effects on these non-motor symptoms? Just now, people are beginning to discuss your question. That is, can we deliver deep brain stimulation in such a way to influence not just the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but these very important non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease? And I think there'll be kind of a couple of important innovations are going to be necessary for this to happen. One is as the listeners probably know, the subthalamic nucleus is a structure that has some topography to it. So there's a motor region of the subthalamic nucleus and there's a non-motor region of the subthalamic nucleus. Currently, deep brain stimulation implantation targeting is to that motor part of subthalamic nucleus to influence the motor symptoms of PD. So to influence those non-motor symptoms would require the ability to target more selectively the non-motor components of the subthalamic nucleus, and as well to understand, again, reaching back to some of our earlier discussion, the appropriate rates and patterns of stimulation that would influence those symptoms in a beneficial way rather than perhaps accentuate them. So this is a, is a, is a very hot area right now because when the patients come in to see their neurologist, they say, you did a great job with my tremor and my gait, and I, I'm, I'm much more functional on the motor side. Now I want you to address these other challenges of Parkinson's disease. Wonderful. I mean, you basically predicted my next question, is, uh, which is like, how do you see the future of DBS, for example, in the treatment of psychiatric disorders like OCD, anxiety, Tourette syndrome, or dementia and 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 motor and major depression. Yeah, so there are a number of very exciting ongoing clinical studies of DBS in a number of the uh, disorders that you mentioned, Nino. And one thing very exciting just happened within the last month is that Abbott, one of the three manufacturers of, of deep brain stimulators received a breakthrough device designation by the Food and Drug Administration for their approach to using deep brain stimulation to treat depression. So there were a couple of trials previously of deep brain stimulation to treat depression, both of which were halted for lack of efficacy. Importantly, we learned a lot from the from those, you know, quote failures, uh, you know, failure from the from the point of view of a clinical trial, but certainly not failure from the point of view of advancing understanding. 
And with that new understanding, I think it really looks quite promising that this new approach to using DBS uh, could be quite effective in depression. Fascinating. Yeah, great, great, great development. Now, Parkinson patients often die of the consequences of aspiration pneumonia, so uh, which is an area that I'm personally interested in from my own research. So uh, does DBS help in the regulation of swallowing, coordination with breathing, or is that not an area that has been studied? You know, that's something I, I, I don't know. Uh, I know that deep brain stimulation uh, has been, there have been several studies of the influence on speech. So uh, there the effects are that subthymic nucleus deep brain stimulation can have an adverse effect on speech in individuals with Parkinson's disease. But I don't know about the effects on regulation of swallowing and the coordination of swallowing with breathing. Interesting. Yeah. So lots to do. Now, yes. uh, I was fascinated that you used the RED model to study the effects of DBS. And it seems a very realistic model to mimic Parkinson's disease. Now, in our animal models, and, and you know, we, we do this now routinely, we use transgenic viral approaches. And uh, when we look at the DBS electrodes, you know, they're pretty big and the approaches almost seems very archaic to, to what we do in animal models. So, so what opportunities do you think there are for applying gene therapy to stimulate specific neurons in humans, you know, use, uh, for example, optogenetics and receptor technology? Uh, and how do you think the future will be for humans and and what do you think are the current obstacles to apply a technique that we really now use routinely in mice and rats? Yeah, so one of the things that, that we've been doing with using optogenetics in the rat is to more clearly define what are the targets of deep brain stimulation for symptom relief. So one of my students calls this the spaghetti and meatballs problem, right? You put this, as you described it, quite large electrode down into the subthalamic nucleus, and there are lots of you know, neuron cell bodies around the electrode, local interneurons, neurons that are projecting from subthalamic nucleus to globus pallidus. There's this hyperdirect pathway coming into STM. What are you stimulating? And which of those components should you be stimulating to uh, treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease? So you can answer those questions with optogenetics. So for example, we can transfect just the neurons in subthalamic nucleus, just the meatballs, and then put a fiber optic into subthalamic nucleus and measure the effects of optically activating those transfected neurons on symptom. And when we do that, we see a clear resolution of Parkinsonian symptoms but not as much as you get by delivery of electrical stimulation in the same animal. So then we said, well, maybe you need not just the meatballs, but the spaghetti coming from motor cortex. And so what we're doing right now is using a, a very uh, innovative construct to retrogradely transfect the motor cortex neurons that constitute the hyperdirect pathway and then we can activate that input to subthalamic nucleus at the level of the cortex with one optical fiber and a second optical fiber in the subthalamic nucleus to activate those meatballs and then turn on spaghetti alone, meatballs alone, or put them both together and, and get a whole meal. So 
the, the value of that kind of use of optogenetics is it then tells us what is the target in human and how can we alter the geometry of the electrode or the shape of the stimulation waveform or the parameters of electrical stimulation to refine the targeting of those neurons, just the symptom relieving neurons, and not stimulate the other components, the other neural elements that might beget side effects. So this isn't, as you, as you asked, it's not exactly the use of optogenetics in human, but it's the use of optogenetics to advance human therapy by getting that understanding from the preclinical animal model. Warren, you, you in a way answered my question perfectly because you tell us already that already we can apply some of these techniques to better understand DBS. But, but I'm, I'm, of course, overly optimistic. And I, each time I interview neurosurgery residents, I tell them that in the future, you will not you know, take out pieces of brain but you will uh, insert viral vectors to, to stimulate much more specifically. And you will think about, you know, like the state that we're right now and say, can you imagine these people would put these huge electrodes into the brain? And, and I think it will be very fascinating to see the development and, and how we can overcome all the risks associated with gene therapy that are real. You know, I mean, like even in our mouse experiments, we, we constantly have to, double check our genotype we, we we have jumping genes and and all these problems so so there's a a big barrier to overcome before we can apply this but it's great to see that already now we can we can learn so much from 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 this and and i think your study is is a wonderful example how combination of of an animal model can be used to to help humans so I, I love the you know reading your paper and, and and learning from this. So so where does this project now go from here, and what what do you see are the next steps for for your project and your lab? Yeah, I think the 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 most important next step for to advance the cortical evoke potential as a potential feedback signal for deep brain stimulation is to determine whether or not the correlation that we observed in the preclinical animal model between the characteristics of the cortical evoke potential and the effects of deep brain stimulation on symptom also hold true in human. So we know the signal is there in human. We know it can be recorded, but the next step is to establish whether or not that signal is reflective of symptom. Fascinating. Now, so what are the important take-home messages that you want the listeners to remember from our conversation? I think, you know, first and foremost, uh, deep brain stimulation is an incredibly effective therapy for movement disorders and a promising therapy for a number of other neurological disorders. But the selection of the parameters of stimulation, including the where you put the electrode, the contacts on the electrode that are active, the amplitude, pulse duration, pulse repetition frequency of stimulation, how to choose those for therapeutic benefit is unclear. And this really drives the need for closed loop stimulation. That is, enable the system to optimize the dose rather than relying on a healthcare professional who has a limited amount of time to, to tune any particular patient. That closed loop process requires a biomarker or a feedback signal that reflects 
the effects of deep brain stimulation on symptom. In this particular study, we established that the cortical evoke potential is very strongly correlated with symptom in an animal model of Parkinson's disease and is very reproducible across a cohort of animals in contrast to more traditionally used oscillatory signals also potentially benefit for feedback as feedback, but much more variable across animals and less tightly correlated with symptom. So we think that this cortical evoke potential has great promise as a feedback signal for use in closed loop control of deep brain stimulation. Warren, yeah, I thank you very much for actually publishing this important paper in our journal, which uh, really helped, I think, uh, to address this very fundamental issue of better understanding what, what actually are you stimulating and how can we improve it? Specifically, if you want to go into psychiatric disorders, you know, like OCD, Tourette, et cetera, then I think this will become extremely critical and, uh, and really a, a matter of, of new developments. So Warren, thank you so much for this interesting discussion. And, and I hope we, we see us again in one of those podcasts when you publish the next paper with us. So Warren, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Ramirez. And uh, thanks for your great uh, leadership of the Journal of Neurophysiology. Wow. Yes. Thank you. All the best. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.